Justin, I think you're muted. Oh. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. We'll go back. Hold on. Hold on. We'll go back. And good go. morning. Welcome to another great edition of the Torque and Thrust Talk Show. I'm Justin. We've got some great information lined up for you today. Some news articles, some jargon, and of course, the weekly discussion topic. Today's episode, Grown Adults Don't Cry. Uh, there we go. That's better. Classic. I was, I was sitting there looking. I'm like, I see his mouth moving. So I was like, I'm really confused because you know I've had issues in the past, like our first episode where I wasn't hearing stuff. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know if that's him. I don't know if that's me or what the what that was. But uh, here we are. That's great. <laughs> yeah, we're here now. Tommy, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? It's kind of a early morning for me but i was able to knock out of work a little bit early this morning oh there you go bill and how's the day going for you it's going um not too bad like tommy said early it's been a, a busy week i've been finishing up uh last week i think i talked about the uh floors that we had put in so i've been doing a lot of dolting finishing up the baseboards and putting little itty bitty pieces of wood underneath our door frames sending them over and painting them to try to make them look continuous but other than that it's it's not been a bad week at all how about you justin um it hasn't been bad um just kind of been transitioning stuff over getting my deer hunting season stuff out putting turkey stuff away and getting ready for what the fall has in store what do you guys say we talk about some news bill take uh, it away you got it and absolutely no problem no problem at all well, good morning, everybody, and it's starting off, uh, not starting off, I guess we're midweek now, but uh, kind of carrying off what we had last week, uh, this week in aviation history on October 22nd, 1797, this is in France, so please bear with me, I am probably going to butcher this name, um, Andre Jacques Gonnerin, I got the first two right, but the last one I don't know how to pronounce, um, makes the first ever parachute descent at an air show in France. Um, from 2,300 feet from an air balloon. So if you remember, in 1783 is when the Montgolfi Air Brothers started with their balloon, right? We talked about that last week on October 15th. 1797, so what is that, 17, 16 years later? No, wow, bad math, terrible math. 14 years later, um, they're already jumping out of balloons with parachute. So that's what was happening this week in 1797 in terms of aviation history. Now, for current news for the aviation industry, now we all are aware of what happened with uh, Horizon Air um, with the attempted disablement of the aircraft um, from somewhere outside of Seattle to San Francisco. We're not brushing over it. We're still waiting for official reports and stuff to come out before we're able to report on it because the last thing we want to do on this talk show is jump to speculation and have facts wrong. We're trying to avoid that as much as we can. So when I present this, we're not ignoring the fact that that happened. We're, just, we're not brushing over it. We're waiting to circle back to it because we need more information to talk about it. So in lighter news, though, uh, the news that I'm talking about today, and this is actually something, once again, that will affect the general flying public, which I think is pretty cool, um, is United Airlines is going to change how economy class boarding will, will occur. Um, I don't know if uh, you know people remember back in the day. I remember back when they used to board the airplanes from the back to the front. Um, but obviously with bigger airplanes, that becomes a problem. 
Airbus, uh, there was a JetBlue Airbus just recently. They got tipped on the tail. Uh, about two years ago, there was a United 737-900 that also got tipped on its tail because of weight and balance. It's just a huge seesaw. And I know Airbus people make fun of my Boeing, but we got a kickstand on the 737-900 to prevent that. So just saying, we're, we're cool because we have a kickstand. So does motorcycles. But now this is a big subject of, you know, because the, the big problem with boarding right now is overhead space. And just, it, it takes forever to board because they're not boarding from the back to the front. So United Airlines is introducing a new way to board. It's a, it's kind of a new, innovative way. So the United Airlines, and this is only economy. So if you're like Premier 1K, Global uh, Elite, or Global um, Million Mile, it, your status will still, those people will still be able to pre-board with the military veterans, the people who need a little extra time down the jet bridge, people with kids. So the front half is going to be the same. Um, so if, and also if you're in first class, cause I know first class people, they got to be on the airplane first. Um, but that's also for more for weight and balance more than anything to make sure the airplane doesn't tip on its tail, but for economy, this is how it's going to change. So United airlines plans to implement a new boarding process where window seat passengers and economy board first. So hear me out. The most annoying thing uh, for me when I'm traveling in the back is when I have an aisle seat, I board with my group, and then later on, I have to get up and let 50 million people into my row, right? Everybody who has flown has had to deal with that. Yep. So United plans on to having uh, a boarding process where it's window, middle, and then aisle. So it should be a quicker boarding process that way. Most passengers will still board in the same order as before, with a priority given to those with special needs and military personnel. Premium cabin cabins and frigging flyers will also board early. Uh, while this change may save time and increase uh, aircraft utilization, the hassle of boarding windows, the middles, and aisles may outweigh the operational benefits. By the way, this is from Simple Flying. This is not directly from United. This is from Simple Flying. So the boarding groups, so right now, like normally, if you have like a credit card with United or hold some sort of status, you're with Group 1 or Group 2. Group 3 will be your windows. Group 4 will be your um, middles. And then Group 5 will be aisles. And then group six will be that economy base or basic economy selection where you're, you're a little bit more limited on what you can bring on the airplane. Now, the biggest question is about carry-ons, right? Because that's always the biggest thing. And honestly, and I don't know if it's, I can't remember when they changed the carry-on policy, but the biggest real concern, especially for me when I'm commuting, is if I am in group six, right? Because I do wait to board with my group, um, especially on smaller airplanes, the overhead space may not be available, right? Because the overhead space, especially on the older airplanes, can accommodate everybody's carry-on. Those overhead spaces were designed back in the day when the carry-on was a briefcase, right? Not full-blown 22-inch roller boards nowadays. So <laughs> now the biggest problem is, okay, so now it used to be like group six, group seven, the basic economy people that would have to worry. That's why they're limited to how much, or they're, I think they have one less baggage or a piece of baggage they can bring on board an airplane. But the problem is now if you're in an aisle seat, you may run out of baggage space because you're going to be the last group on now. So it's more efficient, but you're kind of backing those people into a corner. So that is something that's kind of worrisome uh, that this article brings up. And I kind of agree. So this is going to be interesting to see because, you know, being in part of this airline, uh, the boarding process does take a long time. And usually the delayed factor, or the limiting factor for us on time um, is either bags or uh, passenger boarding. So it's, I'm going to be really curious to see if this actually is going to work. What do you guys think? Do you think boarding from the windows out is going to actually, uh, uh, help with the boarding process in the times that I've flown and I've always, I've always booked a window seat mm -hmm. always. Um, but you have those folks that would, you know, book middle and aisle seat. Mm-hmm. And somebody riding single books 
that window seat, those two folks have to stop what they're doing, get up, get out, block the entire aisle, let the window in, mm-hmm. sit back that, you know, that you do that for what, 20, 30 rows. And now everyone's like, okay, come on, just mm-hmm. come on. Well, and also with the whole bag thing too, if you think about it, um, if you have to go to the back of the airplane to find bag space, right. And then you have to go upstream. I call it salmon, salmon fishing. Cause yeah. you're going upstream. And then on top of that, let's say you are like right now, if you are in the window seat, then you got to get to your place, have the other two people get out and then you jump in. Right. You know? So it, it I, I think it's more logical than boarding from back to front. Cause we can, we just can't do back to front because of the loading problems. Right. Because yeah. of the weight and balance. Um, so what do you think, Tommy? Cause you, you, Tommy, did you ever experience boarding? Like what I was talking about boarding from the back to the front? Yes. Back, back yes, in the day? Believe yeah. it or not, in Gainesville, I have a big tactical backpack that I could fit. So I'm just going to crush it and slide it on the seat in front of me. So the yeah. overhead isn't really like a thing for me. But I believe that statistically I would be a minority on that since everyone always has something that's got to go in the bin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't like that idea. I know me personally, and I know you guys will find this hard to believe, that would aggravate me. No way. Tommy getting aggravated? No. no. Yeah, especially if like no I'm way. in – the no. last group boarding the aircraft and be like, yo, dude, really? Yeah. No, so, I paid I mean, however many hundreds for this. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think, I think United's taking a step in the right way. And I'm not saying that because I work for them. I'm, I'm saying that because it is, boarding has become a circus of a process. Yeah. So having a little more logic to it, I think would help. I think it really would. Honestly, when I'm in the back, um, and there's overhead space running out. The problem is Tommy in his backpack. Although, actually, no, it's not Tommy in his backpack because Tommy's putting his backpack underneath the seat in front of him. The problem is, is people putting purses and um, like sweaters and jackets. What would be their personal items. Correct. What's supposed to be, because they're trying to get, what's happening is they're trying to maximize. Don't get me wrong, I understand that, especially on longer flights, trying to maximize their feet space. But the problem is, is the, the seats underneath. Or the underneath the seat in front of you is intended for your backpacks, for your sweaters, for your purses, not the overhead. Overhead is supposed to be for your rollerboards, so that's also a problem. So I, I could see where that may uh, may help out, I guess, with this whole baggage issue. But is the gate agent and the crew has to heavily police that to make sure that there is they're maximizing the space overhead. And who knows, it may not be a problem because the new aircraft that the interiors that we're getting are the bigger overhead bins where you turn the bag sideways like books and you can fit, I think everybody, that's what they're advertising, they're, they can fit everybody's one rollerboard. But as soon as somebody you know, puts a, a backpack up there or their winter coat up there, it kind of screws up the system. But up next is going to be Tommy D with some gaming and aviation news, I think. Are you doing gaming and aviation today? I'm actually doing um, EMS career today. Oh, God. Dang it, Tommy. You didn't brief me on that. I don't have the right caption thing up. You're supposed to be doing gaming and simulation. I could actually do gaming because I got both. So let's okay. do gaming. Yeah, while you do that, I'll let you... some exciting stuff coming down with this fight sim. Okay, cool. Yeah, so while you're doing that, you'll see the ticker tape change because I'll be editing it while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so good morning, everybody. Quick gaming tips. Um, gaming news. Uh, gaming tips I don't give anymore because most of mine don't work. Uh, the PMDG. Made a big, big announcement. Michael Randazzo, who is the uh, head of development for the PMDG 737 series, and also I believe he heads the 777 series, uh, 
the UFB, they're calling it the Universal Flight, UFT, Universal Flight Tablet, is set to release the 30th of this month. This has been spoken about, anticipated, pushed off, forgotten about, and then talked about again since the release of the original PDMG 700 over a year ago. Uh, they did not allude in their press release to what's going to be in there, but you are going to be able to do weights and balances and more of the technical aspect of getting your aircraft ready for a flight during your pre-flight. Starfield has also lost a little bit in the popularity polls this week. And it was because of the discussion we had last week uh, where you're billing it as open map, but it's really not truly open map. You, you have those borders. That that's pretty much a gaming news update quick. Oh, okay. Sorry. You still have medical stuff. I don't know why I just queued us back in. <laughs> and we're out. We're still listening. Oh, okay. So the medical stuff, real quick, not to scare anyone away. The what I wanted to touch on is I had we had brought up the statistic, and this was actually a conversation Bill and I had before I put it on our show, was ninety-five thousand professional EMTs and paramedics leaving the career field. That is still trending. Uh, can you summarize the reasons again? Because I lost it in the story. So what was the number one reason people are? Insufficient pay, forced overtime, mandatory overtime. Mm -hmm. Lack of benefits. Mm -hmm. And by I say lack, uh, the expense of medical benefits, which again, we're not doing. We're okay. not getting into that with as far as with me. And the... And, it blew my mind when I read it, realistically. The, okay, the so so basically the attrition is lack of pay, lack of benefits, and lack of appreciation. Yep. I mean, I, I think that's a fair point. Because, um, and I also think it's a cultural thing, too, because a lot of people see EMTs as, like, sub-paramedics, which is not true. They work No, that is true. Entry, so basically, entry level is an EMT. Interesting. Then, okay, so I'm wrong. <laughs> you got, but the point is, is the perception is a little bit different. I think also where the appreciation comes as public service, right? I think we're coming into a lot of, I don't know if it's post pandemic or what it is, but I feel like the minds mindset has come from public service to public servant, if that makes sense. It's, it's yeah. just the kind oh, of, a yeah, change, of mind, change of mindset. So, um, so are what what are they doing to counteract the the attrition, Tommy? Is there are there programs out there? Are there like uh, there are programs out programs? there? Um, last week we had said um, the volunteers are actually the ones that are spearheading this mm -hmm. by offering to pay for the EMT course because right now in the United States it'll go anywhere from six hundred and fifty bucks to upwards of fourteen hundred for an EMT class, and I've been an instructor since 1990 who cares oh, hold on so who's who's paying for it? are it like companies companies like city, and stuff like that yeah or is it like the private no. municipal are... and uh county run systems mm -hmm. you're on your dime and 90 okay. percent of them run an academy so you're actually getting paid to go oh and okay. you get three tries it's a three strike system you get three tries at that national registry exam if you don't pass you're out Okay, and but so would you say like the the largest barrier for someone who's trying to enter the field and like help with the attrition rate would be the cost of training? Is that yes. something that's that's heavily be like, oh wait, I don't have enough money to do this? Yes. With that being said, thanks Tommy for the updates um, for gaming and medical. Again, a double double threat today. Um, so, but uh, we'll move on to 
Justin with the commercial transportation. I just need to change that to automotive news. Um, but some automotive news with Justin, a.k.a. Wise-Ass Trucker. How we doing? All right. So this is for anyone out there that is looking to start their CDL training. Um, Lamar State College, Port Arthur, Texas, is actively seeking to enter into training contact contracts with companies around the nation to provide training and examination services. So, what does this mean? Well, the school just received a $4.3 million federal grant and a 20-acre truck driving training center, and they are now able to process 20,000 commercial driver license exams annually. So, the community college is in Port Arthur, Texas, which is about 90 miles east of Houston. And they were awarded the U.S. Department of Commerce Economic Development Administration Workforce Development Grant in February 2021 to create a CDL testing site. The center provides the largest commercial driving training and examination facility in their region. And it does encompass both commercial driver training and commercial driver examination. So they can they can do both parts of your training. You'll go there, do you know your class A, class B, dump truck, whatever training, and then they can also issue the state licensing examinations. And now they're looking for students who want to take part in the program. So if you're looking for someplace to do both your CDL training and get your license in one-stop shop, Lamar State College in Port Arthur. So is that kind of like a, like almost like a flow program, right? Is it is it through a specific company or are they going to have like job placement? How do, how does that work? Um, I didn't read much about the job placement, mm-hmm. but they're definitely looking for partnerships with companies. Okay. Um, to help with um, the examinations is the big thing. Mm-hmm. Is they need staff and they need companies to help them get new trainees to the state examinations or state examiners. Okay. So if they do do that, then it would be like a flow program, right? It'd be like a zero to hero program almost. Almost, yeah. My big thing on that was just just the numbers that they're gonna they're projecting they're able to process up to twenty thousand new drivers. How is that possible, though? With Is that that one site that you're talking about? That, That's that one site, yeah. How many acres of uh, driving land do they have? Or 20 land? acres. That still doesn't seem... And how many tractor trailers? Um, let's Did you see. Say? 20, they had 20 vehicles. So they're going to put 1,000 people per... per tra- Wait, okay. And, and what was the time frame for that? Because they said... That's annually. 20, but it's also, it's also being... Um, done as a uh, state exam site too. Oh, so wait, so is the twenty? So it's not. 000... It's not just training. It's also an exam site. Okay, so is the twenty thousand including like? Ex- uh, it, it's got a, for yes. Exams? It it's including new students coming through and also um just exam state exams. Yes. Okay, that makes a little more sense. That yeah. was like twenty thousand students a year in twenty trucks. <laughs> How is that? The math doesn't math. On 20 <laughs> acres. There's, so it's one student per truck. Per acre. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. You also have to remember, too, that you, like there's there's road training that you have to do. You have to leave 
Oh, okay. have to leave the yard and and experience the world. It's you I, know. I was you gonna can't... say they're gonna, <laughs> gonna rip out the bed and the sleeper and put like stadium seating. So it's there's actually gonna be twenty people in the truck. It's just, um, you're so gonna have, you're gonna have 18 behind you. <laughs> when I when I went to see the L school, that's what we had. Our, our road trucks were sleepers, and they ripped the seats out and put air ride seats in the bunk oh, area. Oh, that's <laughs> jump. So seats. there's there's a a line of three three air ride seats sitting in the back, and the instructor would always sit front passenger. That's funny. That is so yeah. funny. And pull around hey. a, like a like a low boy with with bleachers on him, just to carry. <laughs> <around>. <laughs> All right. Everybody paid Contestant number 961, your turn. <laughs> All right, yeah, 961, good job. 962, come here. <laughs> I kind of like that aesthetic. You know, so the numbers are a little large, but I like that aesthetic. So, Justin, in your professional opinion. The aesthetic, you mean his Dunder Mifflin blanket? Yes, that's oh. it. I was like, but, uh, that, means, <laughs> that means the look. <laughs> yeah, the, the look of how the driving school is set up. Okay. I, Okay. Yeah, we'll I, talk about I, that. I, at, I, off, I think after. it's the physical. But, Anyways, we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Listen, we're running on like ninety minutes sleep, guys. So let's just <laughs> just smile and nod at me. Okay. Seen before. <laughs> but um, th- will this actually help standardizing training for professional drivers? There's kind of a federal set of guidelines that they have to look at, but how each state actually conducts it is different. <laughs> I just had to tell the state examiner, okay, under the hood section, this is what I'm looking for. In the cab section, this is what I'm looking for. The rear end, and like that around the truck. Whereas my neighbors to the state of New Hampshire, when you go take your state skills exam, they tell you you're going to be, you're going to want to bring gloves. The state's going to provide a creeper. Okay, can you clarify? Sorry, a creeper is um, so a creeper is, is the thing that you roll like the what the mechanics. Lay yeah, on it's what the mechanics. Okay. Uh, it, I thought you, you, you took lay on your back and you guy and we're just you know, dragging him around and... the truck. So, so it's so the school's not really going to standardize anything because it's it's it varies per state. Yeah. Okay. Same thing with the national registry. Yeah, it like sounds yeah, everything, same thing. Everything, it's kind of like a flight school, you know, a flight school, even though it's technically federally regulated, you're going to get a different experience depending on which flight school you go to. So yeah. to jargon in a jiffy, my favorite segment of this entire show <laughs> <laughs> and, why, and it's, why it's my favorite is just because it's it's a learning thing. It's funny to see each other try to because you're talking about three. And if I do say so myself, three very intelligent people sitting in this video podcast trying to figure out these words yeah very competitive people mind you too so like we want to figure this out so today's word for trucking jargon is pigtail okay using a sentence um (laughs) you can't just say pigtail and then well no i know i know because i've been going over how how i was going to present this so that way okay um, is it, hold on, timeout. Is it going to be PG? Yes. Do I need to start bleeping stuff? Okay, just want to make sure. There was something wrong with my pigtail, so I had to get that replaced before I could leave on my trip. Oh, I think I know what it is. I think. Maybe. Tommy? Before I start shouting out answers. I love okay, so what comes to my mind first mm-hmm. is... Um, 
was not what I thought it was because I got a different definition for pigtail. But is that the the portion of wheels that go be, between dual trailers? Nope. Nope. I would say, is it um, your the airlines? The lines are coming out of the back of the the truck that you hook up to your trailer, I, like pneumatic, like pneumatic brake lines. You're close. Because they, I'm I, all I'm thinking of. I don't know what they, the actual lines are, but they're the ones that are they're coiled, right? Yep. Yep. So the pigtail specifically is the electrical connection. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what, it, but I know it's those cords oh. in the back. Because you always, because, do, yeah. yeah, because many trucks they're they're coiled, so mm -hmm. that way they retract themselves. But yeah, it's it's the the actual electrical connection. The other two are called glide hands, but um, or airlines. But yeah, it's so. Would you it, refer to the air the airlines also as pigtails because they're also no nope. coiled or is it no? Nope. It's, it's just the electrical connection. Uh, Tommy, what were you talking about in between the trailer? Yeah, when you, you run in doubles, you have that the set of wheels that's between oh the doubles right there. I gotcha. That was a good guess too. I didn't know what you were talking yeah. about originally, but that is actually was I, I I knew what he was talking about, and that no, that's the yeah, uh, that's the dolly. Ah, oh, there we go. Ah, okay. Well, there, there we go. go. He can't use that in the jargon in the Jiffy in the future. Well, he also heard of Dolly use... Parton, and when you pull them apart, they're Dolly Uparton. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's good one. you also can't use Creeper anymore either. Cause I know. As soon as you <laughs> like... I was like, I think I know what he's talking about, but now he can't use that for Jerry and Jiffy. Cause I'm Your never face was actually out. classic because if Justin had paused for a quick second, I would have been like, no, Bill, the other one, not that one. Yeah, I was like, did you drag like the, 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 the town creeper underneath the truck? That's kind of cruel. I was just so – when you said it, I was like, is he just going to keep going without explaining what that is? Because I, I don't know what that is. All right, Tommy, let's see what you got. Okay, so this week this my morning. jargon is bull rail. So part of my job. Mm -hmm. I have to start a shift is to walk and inspect the bull rail. Immediately what comes to mind is like Justin's Ram bars on ATS, but that's not that would it make Those sense are bull on? bars. Bull bar. Oh. <laughs> I see that would make sense on a on an ambulance though. I hope not. Unless it's in a zombie apocalypse or something. Um bull rail is to inspect the bull rail. Is it on the truck, Tommy? No, it's not on the truck. It's not on the truck. It's actually this is a term from my current industry. Oh, okay. Man, you're throwing curveballs left and right. You went news with EMT stuff, and then this one's your current career. Throwing me, throwing me off. Um, it's where you hit y'all's horses out there in Pennsylvania when you go to work. It should be, but no, no. I honestly no. have no idea. Justin, do you got? I have um, no idea. Is it, does it have to do with um, like the product conveyor system? In some warehouses, yes. Okay. It doesn't really help. I don't I have no. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm stumped. Yeah, Tom, I've, I've got stumped. nothing. Tommy? Okay, so the bull rail is a either metal or they're replacing it with what's called A-safe, which is a very high-impact, heavy-duty composite plastic that goes around the edge of where the order pickers and the elect and the uh, battery operated machinery works. And it's basically <laughs> what gives them their drive lanes and keeps them from losing control and hitting people as they're walking through the warehouse bumper. They're bumpers, big bumpers. Yeah. They're, they're, they're bumpers for their bumper car for auto 
guardrails. Guardrails. <laughs> yeah, essentially what we call it a bull rail. Um, so now mine I don't know. Tommy actually may not get this one. I tried to specifically find one to stump Tommy because Tommy's good at my words because we sim together. So um my word is slick. So the Boeing 737 compared to the Embraer 145 is a very slick airplane. It makes descent planning and configuration planning extremely important. Can you tell I rehearsed that in the mirror a couple times? Yeah. Hmm. All right. Who wants to go first? Slick. The word is slick. D- Justin? Yeah, Justin? Um, Does it mean, in- like, aerodynamically efficient? Uh. C- kind of you're in the ballpark and why in the ballpark you're like in the left field nosebleeds but you're there <laughs> so I, I so what you're saying is i need binoculars to see the picture uh correct absolutely okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're, you're there that's it that's as far <laughs> tommy you see i was thinking right along with justin was doing something to do with the aerodynamics of the aircraft can you get a little more specific aerodynamics is there so aerodynamics is this the huge subject that generally deals with aircraft in general so you're there i just need you guys to be a little more specific what about the aerodynamics there's not a lot of drag yeah there's less drag or it cuts through the air easier while in flight kind of you guys are walking the correct direction so you're not walking towards home plate like you're not going down the roads you're kind of walking through your row Around are we like walking the towards the bullpen now? Uh, not really. You're not going towards home plate. You're walking around the outfield. Um, so <laughs> slick is kind of it is aerodynamic. So a slick or slippery airplane is an airplane that is hard to slow down once it starts descending because of its wing configuration. So like the Embraer 145, even though it's technically a swept wing aircraft, is a pretty straight wing compared to most airline type aircraft. So that thing could stop on a dime. Like, like LaGuardia would love us because we'd come in and they say, hey, can you do 250 the marker? Yeah, we could. We do 250 the marker. Or they'd ask us to slam on the brakes and go 180. And all we had to do was go gear down, flaps nine, and uh, speed brakes. And that thing would stop. And that's because there was so much drag presented uh, because of the wing was being so straight. Whereas the 737, the 175, and the CRJ700, the ones you can see behind me here, um, the wing were swept a little bit more. And so it made it a slicker aircraft because it was harder to slow down once you started coming downhill. So with those airplanes, like the Boeing 737, you have to be extremely cognizant of your descent planning. So you have to dis- you have to plan everything out to be like, well, I know I'm going to be asked to slow to like 210 here, but I need to be at this altitude for the approach. So I'll use the extra airspeed, like 250 knots, to get us down quicker and level before the point, then level, then slow down, then configure, and then so on and so forth. Um, on the 145, you had descent planning, but realistically, that thing could slow down like that. So we didn't really have to worry about it as much as the other airplanes I flew. So slick is meaning slippery, so hard to slow down. Nice. You got me good on gotcha. that one. Yeah. See, I like I said, you guys, on were, that one. you guys were close. Like you walked into the ballpark and I'm like, hey, <laughs> here we are. We're here. You're like, oh, wait, there's nobody in front of us. We can go find better seats. But rather than walking down towards the plate, you guys were walking all the way around to the to plate side or first baseline. But uh, anyways, so, yeah, that's jargon in a jiffy. 
All right, well, that'll lead us into our next segment, which is going to be career corner. Now, if you guys remember uh, last week, we talked about this used to be comment corner where we talked about the trolls and tribulations of being uh, content creators. Uh, but then we realized we don't want to give those trolls a platform. We want to use this time more productively. So we changed it to career corner where we get to talk about our individual careers and how to get started uh, and actually the building blocks. So last week we talked about how to get started in our careers. This week we're going to be talking about the first steps that you can expect in our individual careers. And to start with that, uh, we're going to have Tommy talking about the first week in EMT school. The first week of EMT school, um, a lot happens. It's, it's administrative and when they follow suit, it's all medical legal. And this is just straight memorization. You learn all your different terms. Uh, you know, your duty to act, the standard of care, the um, malfeasance, malpractice, the different insurances and stuff like that. So the first week you could expect to read about three chapters from front to back and then answer a quiz. You also start getting uh, into your assessment. So like how do you examine people because they just don't you know there's got to be some sort of standardization they just don't give you all this information and then stick you out without teaching you any sort of practical skill so the skills themselves are actually slowly introduced to you that entire first week you'll see things start to pick up at the end of the first week when we actually start breaking the candidates into groups depending on how large the class is like if i have a group of 20 i would make four groups of five and start giving them what we call the skill sheets. And these are the actual sheets with the steps that teach them how to do skills. So it's everything from a medical or a trauma patient assessment, which is the actual physical exam, a history taking, a history of present illness taking, uh, how to stop bleeding, how to apply a tourniquet. Anything that we do on an ambulance is in this little packet. Uh, we, we actually call it the skills Bible. Hopefully, if people are watching this, they won't have to quit, right? Because uh, thanks to Tommy, they're going to know what's coming, right? Yeah, I think that's always gonna... the biggest thing is that first week of – it's the same thing with the airlines. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And if someone didn't tell me that I was going to be drinking from a fire hose, it would have been extremely overwhelming. So hopefully with Tommy's uh, summarization of the first week, that will help people prepare a little bit better for their first week of EMT school. And uh, <laughs> with that high note there – uh, Justin, you want to talk about the next step for uh, for CDL grads? Yeah. So now that um, hypothetical hypo eh, hypothetically, you've gone through CDL school, you've passed CDL school, and you've gone through and passed your state exam. Um, now what do you do? So my hope is that when you were ending when you were near the end of your CDL school experience and you already had your test date from the state, you would have been applying to companies. But what does that process look like? So for new, and this is just for new drivers, um, when you get hired, you're going to have to go do a DOT medical exam. And this is every job that you will ever have in trucking even if you had one yesterday new company is going to want you to have a fresh dot medical exam from one of their approved facilities you will have to provide as a new driver 
five years of employment history. And they will also ask you for release of your motor vehicle records because, of course, you're going to be driving. They want to make sure that you don't have flagrant DUIs or um, operating to endangers or, you know, 38 speeding citations. Um, your big moving violations. They, If you got a parking ticket in Portland, Maine three years ago, they, they don't care about that. Um, seatbelt violations, they will look at because federally regulated commercial drivers are required to wear your seatbelt. Um, and your hiring process, why I said, hopefully you're applying while you were still at CDL school. Some of these companies can take up to a month to do all of the vetting before they send you an offer of employment. And while you're in CDL school, they can actually issue a conditioner, conditional offer of employment saying, as long as you pass and you get your CDL test, you have a job with us when you get done. So apply early in your training. It could take up to a month for them to process all your information, make sure that you have a clean driving record, and also make sure that your urine test will be clean because that will be an automatic disqualifier. Even if you live in a state where it's legal, it's still federally regulated by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Okay, remember, positive. We're trying to keep positivity. I'm a realist. Their careers. No, well, there's a realist, and they're scared <laughs> daylights. I'm trying to encourage. Good God. Oh, my God. It's like Tommy was talking about diving behind a diesel block last month. You're just like, don't fail your urinary drug test. And back to you, Bill. It, 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 <laughs> it, but it's something that you have to keep in mind. All right. Well, um, thank you, Justin. That yeah. was uh, the next step in uh, to become a commercial or professional driver like uh, Justin. And um, I am going to be talking about the first – well, technically, it would be the second step um, to becoming a professional pilot. Remember last episode I mentioned you don't have to be an airline pilot. That's just what I do. There's a lot of different career fields that we can have um, with professional piloting. Um, so the next step after you've taken that discovery flight, you've gone to the flight school, you've landed, you said, you know what, this is what I want to do. The next step you need to do is first talk to that same instructor that took you up about getting your private pilot license. It's also known as the PPL in the United States. It's the first license you need to get to move towards being an airline or a professional pilot. Private pilot basically just means you're not you're able to fly an airplane, uh, single engine airplane by yourself without um, without any sort of compensation. So you can get you can't get paid. But if you and your friend want to go fly up somewhere for uh, lunch and you guys want to split the cost of operating the airplane right down the middle, that's completely legal. But that person can't buy you a, a $250 hamburger uh, in order to have you fly them up there for something. There, there's also a little regulation stuff you'll learn about that when we get there a little bit. But it's, it's just the basic. So 
I know the big thing that everybody's going to ask is going to be cost. So the average in 2023, the average cost of a private pilot's license is from nine to fifteen thousand dollars, depending on where you go. Uh, fifteen thousand is probably leaning more towards your professional Part 141 schools or university programs. Nine thousand might be a Part 61 mom and pop. It also may vary depending on state because fuel prices, which play a huge factor, and instructor rates do vary. But for your private pilot. The first lesson or the first section of your training is most likely to be what's called pre-solo, where you're getting introduced into the basic flight maneuvers of the airplane, and most importantly, taking off and landing, because that's what you're going to be doing on your solo. Now, you can start flight training as long as, as early as you want in an airplane, but you have to be at least, uh, I believe it's 15 to solo and 16, no, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. You have to be 16 to solo, 17 to get your actual private pilot's license. So at the age of 16, you could solo. So that's basically after the first phase, you've proven that you can safely op operate the aircraft basically by yourself. The instructor is going to step out and let you do a couple of uh, landings by yourself, and then you move on to what's called the cross-country phase. So you go outside of your training area, and you start going to airports other than your home airport, usually more than 50 nautical miles away, and get experience with navigation, orientation, um, pilotage and dead reckoning and stuff like that. Um, it's all about the navigation skills. You learn how to do cross countries. Then once you're done with that, generally you start doing a couple, you do a couple solo cross countries for your private pilot. Um, then you'll get back with the instructor. Uh, instructor you'll do, you I think it's three, it's three hours of nighttime flying, including 10 landings at night. And I believe there has to be a diversion or cross country in there. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at the part 61 regs for private pilot, but eventually you'll get to the point where you're doing your check ride. And that is, as far as I'm aware, for Part 61, so this is non-university, just Part 61 flight school, is a minimum of 40 flight hours. So 40 flight hours, and you have to be 17 years old. All right. Um, with that, we will now transition. Uh, I was going to say Q&A. There's not really any Q&A up there. I just want to say hello to Steph in our TikTok Live and our wonderful moderator, Snowy, uh, who's a moderator for all three of us, I believe. Right? Is he a moderator on your Twitch channel, Justin? Um, Not yet. I need to add him yeah not yet but snow is also our technical advisor really good with technical feedback as well um so welcome uh dell was in our uh chat over here and tommy he wants to know if you can share here let me pop this up real quick um i don't know why that doesn't show up because it's like sitting right here um he wants to know if uh, the craziest or weirdest call that you've ever got that you can share that's relatively pg it's what we call the street job where you're not going into someone's house. It's just a cross street location. So like, you oh, know, okay. first street and second Avenue on the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a guy for about, and I was driving that day. So pull over and naturally I'm on the wrong side of the road. So mm -hmm. I'm at the sidewalk and my partner's looking across the truck, at the cab at, and uh, this certain person uh, tried for a good 15 minutes to convince us that he had mange. You know, the skin condition that dogs get. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he was going. It, and he just tried. And it was right where um, fall was transitioning to the begin early winter. Okay. So, and he said, I got mange and I got this because me and my dog. And then, and <laughs> he's just going, I'm like, dude, there's no way possible you got mange. Like, there's, it there's, just don't happen to humans. It's so not. Finally, <laughs> no, it's not. Finally, I just looked at him. And I was like, listen, bud, I'm going to ask you one question. I just wanted one truthful answer from you, and we'll take care of you. And he goes, okay, what do you want to know? I was like, are you cold? And he looks at me, and he goes, yeah. I was like, all right, so you are you don't have any place to live, right? And he goes, no. 
you could have just told me that. Yeah. Get in the back of the truck. Go, go. And I think, I believe I said it, go around the back of the truck to the emergency entrance. And my <laughs> partner started laughing and we went, we took him to the hospital and I think we wrote him up as um, hypothermic, but I mean, it was entertaining. All right. Well, that'll, the spooky weirdness actually transitioned us, transitions us great into our topic for this week. I'm actually super excited about this um, because one big thing that we talked about when we were having this talk show is that our discussion topics were specifically, or not specifically, weren't necessarily supposed to be about our careers. It was just supposed to be, it could be like, um, you know, it could just be like the, the the current trending thing or just any sort of random topic we could come up with. We even have something in our Discord, which if you're not part of our Discord, feel free to check it out. It's in all three of our links in our bios. Um, there's a section on there where you can actually go and put a topic request in our Discord. And if it's something that's appropriate and uh, entertaining, we may talk about it. So feel free to go check that out. But this week, I'm super excited about this because we're talking about the scariest movies we have ever seen. And I've warned Tommy and I've warned Justin. I am kind of a cine geek. Cinema geek? Cine geek? Well, I don't know what the top word we'll is. We'll pretend that's a word, yeah. That's a word. Yes, it's a word now. Cine geek. That's, that's, that, that's the new one. Um, yeah, I'll put I, it in the book. One of the best. There we go. One Send of the, that to uh, Webster's, please. Yep, please. I want it in the dictionary next week. Thank you, Tommy. Um, but I took one of my favorite classes. It was an elective in college I took was the history of narrative film. And we literally started off with Buster Keaton's Sherlock Holmes Juniors. And I think we went all the way through the different eras of cinema um, and watched all the way. I think we ended it with the artist from 2012 with John Goodman as a full circle from silent, original silent film to modern silent film. Um, and we, I mean, we just dove into some of the greatest films of all time. So I warned them that this is going to get pretty good. Let's see. Uh, Justin, why don't you start? You were telling me, we were talking a little bit pre-show. Yeah. So, so when it comes to horror, um, the, the slasher films, the gore, things mm -hmm. like that, like they, they don't affect me. It, it, it doesn't bother me. I can sit here and watch, you know, in an ER trauma show and eat a sandwich. It, it, it no effect <laughs> on me. Um, for me, it is the psychological thrillers, the ones that <laughs> will build suspense. They get in your head. Um, and one of my one of my favorites recently um, was A Quiet Place with Ooh. John Krasinski and yep. Emily Blunt. And there are like four speaking lines throughout the entire movie, but it builds suspense. So is it so is uh, the acting too, because John Krasinski and yeah. Emma, uh, Emily, what's her name? Emily uh, Blunt. Emily Blunt are great actors yes so i think that plays into it as well yeah um but along the lines of psychological thrillers and you can laugh at me if you want i don't care um the movies that i i think have had the biggest effect are um the paranormal activities where it's you know that seemingly home movie shot not a whole lot of you know refinement as far as yeah. high class cinema but it's constantly getting into your head and you're like, well, what's there? What's there? What's there? I personally don't like the handheld VHS ones. Like, uh, what was it? Cloverfield is Cloverfield. One of the Cloverfield was one of them. And the one that, the one that started it all was, um, the Blair Witch, the, the Blair Witch, which I, I'm sorry that just the, that movement and 
because there, there's ways you can simulate that that movement without actually doing it. I th- me personally, Blair Witch and Cloverfield, I got motion sick watching those films because it was just like, oh, finally something of interest. Never mind. Let's just like shake the camera so bad I can't see what's going on. But that's just me personally. That's yeah. that's I just don't like that type of cinematography. All right, Tommy, talk to us. So me personally, it's an oldie but a goodie. Exorcist. Did I guess it right? Close. The oh. Amityville Horror. Oh, that um, is a classic. I actually read that book too because I would say the book is a little bit, in my opinion, the book's a little bit better than the movie. It, it is, it is, and I don't know why, but there was just something about that film because I'm like Justin. I, I would rather the psychological thriller than the actual, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna run around the forest with a machete and <laughs> everything from you know ant hills to people that come through here. And do you ever notice all those people always have that same idea? Our yeah. car's broken down, but let's walk 30 yards into the woods and see what happens. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll right? talk about that in a second. Yeah, I hate those films. And, <laughs> but I grew up literally like 30 minutes from the actual house. I would say, isn't it? Isn't the actual house in Pennsylvania? No, it, it's in Long Island, New York. Is Once it really? A, oh, I thought oh, it was yeah. Pennsylvania. And when all that the, – the original events that happened mm-hmm. and then – you know, and I'm talking about the actual Amityville Horror, not one of the 37 sequels that came out after that. But yeah, it would just freak me out because it's gotten to the point that that house, the township that it's in, changed the address. Yeah, because everybody had, was going. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it was such a huge tourist attraction. Yeah. After that original, like people who lived there couldn't get home from work. Yeah, there would like, literally be hundreds of people around that house. It's like Walter White's house in Albuquerque. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> they had to I, yeah. put up a fence to stop people yep. from throwing pizza on the pizza roof. Pizza's on top of the roof. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is great. But yeah, that's what did it for me. And that one episode where all the flies are on the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, episode. The the one scene. Yeah, I was where, like, episode. Are we talking about the, American? Where the flies are on the window. <laughs> for whatever reason that was, that just freaked me out. Yeah, there's you – know, yeah. I mean, that is a cla- that's a classic thriller, like a throwback classic thriller. So, um, you guys ready for mine? The build up, the ultimate psychological thriller of all time. Lion King. No. Saw three. No. Wait, what? Did you say Lion King? <laughs> <laughs> Long live the king. No, that's just emotionally traumatizing. I realized it, it is. <laughs> Here, I was talking. I was talking about that with my wife the other day. It's like, do we want to show our kids? Because, like, I mean, it's a good movie, but God, that was dark. <laughs> you know, anyways, you know, I saw three. I want to play a game. No, I, my favorite of all time, um, is Woman in Black, the Woman in Black. So, um, I know I talked about this with Brother Moose. I'm originally uh, a theater person, so I was a stage manager, did tech, uh, speech and debate. I was, I did acting and all sorts of stuff. Um, the Woman in Black was originally a 1987 stage play by Stephen Malatrat, Malatrat, if I said that right. Um, it was originally by English office, uh, author Susan Hill. She wrote a book. He adapted it to playwright. Then they adapted it from the playwright show to the movie with Daniel Radcliffe. I want to say it came out in 20, 2010, somewhere around there. I was still in high school when I saw the first one, and I went with my dad. And let me tell you, okay, so I told you guys, right, I'm a cine geek. So it's all about, for me, when I see a movie or even go to theater, like my wife and I are going to see an off-Broadway musical in a couple weeks – it's all about the tech. It's all about the behind the scenes, the stuff that's not just happening right in front of me. So the woman in black, are you guys familiar? Have you guys? I'm not. 
Okay. So the woman in black, um, make sure you guys watch it with the lights on. First of all, um, and for those of you that are watching or listening to the podcast, a little bit of a spoiler. It's a spoiler alert, so just be cautious. Um, basically, there's this town that a lawyer is coming to settle the estate of a woman who had just died. And the story goes that the woman in black, if people start seeing this woman in black, this entity around the town, then children start killing themselves is what it's about. Oh, wow. um, interesting. It, it is very – so it, the the new movie has Daniel Radcliffe in it, um, who's the most notable, I would say. Um, and basically he goes out to this house, and he's working in this old lady's house that had died that he's trying to settle the estate as a lawyer. Um, and the crazy part about this house is that it has a road out to it but is only accessible during low tide. By the way, stupid design, uh, if anybody did that. Absolutely stupid design. Um but basically why I love this movie so much and why is it such a great psychological thriller is nothing ever happens right in front of us. So if you think about like horror movies, slasher films, when, you know, uh, Freddy or Jason or Michael's killing somebody, it's right in front of you, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of cinematography. It's called the thirds rule. You want two thirds of the screen filled up. Um, but that's only for like medium close-ups and stuff like that. If you're doing extended wide or ultra wide shots, it doesn't account, but the one scene that kind of stands out to me that kind of iconicizes the cinematography in this this film is you're looking down a hallway, right? It's a, it's kind of a long shot. It's this long, dark hallway, which, mind you, in the house, my, my house in El Paso, there's a long, dark hallway leading to my room. So this sucked later on. But <laughs> long, dark hallway. At the very end, you see Daniel Radcliffe working on something. Right, he's he's down the hallway. His back is turned. He's kind of in the center of the frame, but you got so much space around you that he's just kind of a speck at the end of end of the shot then the camera starts slowly moving towards daniel radcliffe down the hallway and you're you're just expecting something to jump out right you're just it's 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 killing you but this is the genius in that cinematography there's a mirror over the mantle off to your left right and you're you're staring at daniel radcliffe because you're expecting something to go past the door something to happen in the room etc as you're pushing, as they're pushing the camera down, you see something move in that mirror. That's literally in the peripheral of the screen. It's not even in the main part of the shot, right? You see something move, and literally everybody in that theater, you see their heads go, "Did you see that?" <laughs> and then immediately, as soon as you're there, there's something else that's hap- that happens where Daniel Radcliffe is down the hall, and you're like, "Did you see that?" And then it's just, it's so it's so subtle and there are some jump scares in there but I mean, that entire like every, time like every horror movie you have to have jump scares yeah, yeah but oh my god that entire time it's just like did you see that did you see that or like the first time you see the woman in black it's not just like boo she's there it's you're sitting there and you're kind of looking at daniel radcliffe and then off in the corner you just kind of see a like a face that had been there the whole time like this white face that you just didn't realize because it was there when the shot opened it like slowly turns or turns away and you're just like, did you see that? So, yeah, Woman in Black. That's going to be my all-time favorite just because of the psychological uh, side of it as well as the, the writing. The writing is always really good. So a- according to Rotten Tomatoes, which we know is a pretty good source of cinema critic, uh, yeah. critique, the number one scariest film of all time is The Exorcist from 1973. Okay. Okay, I, I, I could, I, I could uh, definitely I could jump on that boat. 
it's def yeah 100% iconic i'm trying to see if there's anything else that would list something else oh my god i'm obviously not gonna use that one that said scream was the number one <laughs> what nope <laughs> all right hold on let me see i just pulled up an article uh, i want to see who i'm looking at yeah so this other one which is ign international gaming network actually lists the shining tommy as as uh 1980s the shining and the exorcist number two so the top two is the exorcist and the shining which is what we said so well done yeah yeah so with that folks another great episode of the torque and thrust talk show we want to thank everyone that stopped in dropped questions comments (laughs) sorry sorry (laughs) (laughs) you started off yourself i started us by screwing the the sign off sorry continue (laughs) on behalf of the torque and thrust talk show i'm justin I'm Tommy. <laughs> and I'm Bill. I'm so sorry. I screwed that. Uh, just as a friendly reminder, though, our next episode, uh, which will be episode five, which will be next week, November 1st. at uh, So it's going to be Wednesdays all next month because of my schedule. So Wednesday, uh, November 1st at 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central, we'll be doing our next talk show right here on Twitch TV, uh, YouTube, and TikTok Live. For those of you that didn't catch us live, be sure to check out either tomorrow or the day after this Saturday, or I guess, yeah, Saturday, there'll be the audio recording out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Um, for you all to listen to. Uh, but with that, everybody, everybody have a great and wonderful day, and we will see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.